0: Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you um, for coming to this very special evening, BAFTA, A Life in Television. We're going to talk to a man who, as we've heard, has half a century of television behind him, and I would guess, if his recent programs are anything to go by, quite a lot of television to make in front of him. As you will all know, some of you I know, know Trevor personally, but all of you will be familiar with Trevor's work. And Trevor's work speaks for itself, but I have to tell you, as somebody who was for a time his colleague at ITN in the newsroom, unlike possibly anybody I've ever met in television, you would never, ever meet anybody who had anything but the nicest of things to say about Sir Trevor MacDonald. He was a professional colleague, he was very good at his job, better than most, but above all else, he was full of good humour and humanity he was a delight to work with before we came on stage tonight apart from the fact that he's he's sort of rather disgusted by the whole thing tonight the idea that <laughs> that we will come here and talk about his career and talk about his achievements he's the sort of man who really finds that slightly distasteful and again that only speaks to what a great guy he is he's also the sort of man that when we were getting ready backstage They were putting water on the stage, and I said, I think it'd be quite nice if we had a drink, wouldn't it? And I said, you know, of the many things I remember about Trevor when I worked with him at ITN was the fact that whenever anybody was to go to the pub, and it happened in those days quite regularly, Trevor would look at his watch and say, well, it's one o'clock somewhere, isn't it? (laughs) It's delightful to welcome Trevor for tonight. Ladies and gentlemen... It gives me uh, great pleasure to welcome BAFTA fellow, Sir Trevor MacDonald. Why, why don't we start at the very beginning? Let's, let's start at the point when you were a young man and you became aware that journalism, that broadcast journalism, was even a thing. Can you remember that when you thought that's actually I, I a I do job.
1: vaguely because, um, in a way, it's always what I wanted to do. I was born on a tiny, tiny island in the Caribbean, and one of the curious facts of life is that life in these tiny islands are, are not as introspective as you think There might be. People, you know, we, we look outwards. You know, George Bernard Shaw said something about, um, you know, dreaming of things that never were. And yes. and you do in, in a small island. And, and more practically, I listened to the BBC World Service and heard all these guys reporting from Moscow and Beijing and Southern Africa and, and the Far East. And... It seemed to me that they were getting front row seats at big international events. It also occurred to me, I must say, that somebody was paying for them to do this. Right. And I thought this, this sounded a good deal, I thought. And uh, I, I, wanted, I wanted to be involved. But I, I must also confess, I, I did have a kind of interest in the business of the news. I thought in our societies, however they were structured, People survived on knowing what was going on. You, you know, you couldn't run any community unless there was this knowledge of what was going on, and therefore the news played an important part. And I thought it was a a, a good thing to be in.
0: I mean, just to, can you just sort of paint us a, a a quick picture of the background that you came from, though, because th- those seem like um, pretty lofty ambitions. I, I understand what you say about looking out, but mm. where did you know? I'm, I'm wondering where you got the nerve.
1: I suppose, for, uh, I mean, a lot of, from my, my parents. Um, we were not. Um, we never described ourselves as poor. We didn't have any money.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, nobody described themselves as poor in the Caribbean, but they were, we were all broke. And, uh, and, um, but your parents had these ambitions for you, they, and they felt that the only way that you could achieve any kind of social mobility was by educating yourself and aiming high. And I, I, can. You know, I can write an entire book about the admonitions that your parents gave you, you know, aim high, shoot for the stars. My mother used to quote rather laboriously and knowingly something from, I think it's Robert Louis Stevenson saying, you know, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. And I thought, I had no chance of making a sublime life, but these things were drummed into you and you you were made to aim high, you know, and... uh, So I thought this unlikely dream of working like all these correspondents in Moscow or Beijing or wherever was not, in the end, unattainable. I thought I could probably do it.
0: And so it was 1969 when you came to Britain to work I came, yes. That's
1: uh, two centuries ago, that seems.
0: (laughs) It was called the BBC's Overseas Regional Service. You worked as a producer? At Bush House.
1: At Bush House, yes. I was a producer.
0: (laughs) What were Um, were your jobs as a producer, day-to-day?
1: I I, I produced... um, I produce people interviewing other people. And I went to the editor once and I said, do you know, I have also done interviews. Why, are we, why am I producing these people to produce interviews? You, you know, um, I'd like to do some more of that. But no, I had a great, great time at Bush House. Wonderful, wonderful place.
0: Can you remember the first time you sat in front of a live microphone?
1: I did that in Trinidad, and I'm not too sure I can remember the exact time, but I, I, I was always consumed by terror. Uh, and I think it, in some way, it it it, it helped me through. Um, I, I was always terrified. I mean, the idea that what you say in front of this thing would somehow be heard by all these people. I mean, I think it's the most terrifying thing to do. Absolutely. Um, and I I feel the same way now.
0: <laughs> do the, do the nerves get any? I mean, I I appreciate there you're you're saying something amusing, but but for for many people that I interview, they say actually. Nerves can get worse as you get older. I don't think it
1: gets any better. And, right. and you, you, I have one big failing. I've been a worrier. I worry constantly about everything. But
0: that's what makes you good.
1: Well, I don't know whether it does or not, but it doesn't make me feel better. But... LAUGHTER And, you know, I've done a lot of interviews recently on some of the documentaries we've done um, uh, with Plum Television for ITV, and... I, I sit up all night after having discussed enormously with my colleagues, and I still, and I can't still can't help that I can't. In
0: 1973, you went to be a, a reporter for ITN. We were just having a quick chat backstage, and it was very, very, very interesting. That of course, because I was wondering about this, for people who saw you on television at that time, it would have been there's a there's a black. Guy who's a reporter for you. Who, it was who the hell is making... this guy? Yes, I, was... I,
1: I had sympathy with them for that.
0: <laughs> but I, I'm guessing for you, maybe it, it was you just taking your next career step. Were you aware that this was t- emblematic and maybe no. even totemic? For I
1: was people. not. No, I, I was not. I I made a terrible mistake at Bush House, which I enjoyed enormously. I, I boasted to my colleagues, who were just radio journalists. I said, you know, I I did some television in Trinidad, you know, and I. I interviewed people in Trinidad on television, you know, and I was terribly proud of that. And I probably boasted too much. And they called, my, they called my bluff and they said, you know, if you think you're so good, why don't you apply to this place? There's this new place called ITN. I went to ITN, I was bludgeoned into doing it by my colleagues because i had boasted so much. And uh, I turned up at ITN and I remember so well, I, I went to a bookshop on the way there to buy a book because I thought I'd be, kept waiting for a long time. To do an interview. Uh, and um, I went up, and at the end of it, I was kind of offered a job. And I said to the editor, who was a man called Nigel Ryan, I said, Look, can I, can I go back and think about this? I'm not sure. I was, I was absolutely shocked. And, um, and he said, Yes, you can go back and think about it. I went back to Bush House, and I said, and I said How did it go? I said, Well, they offered me a job. And they said, What did you say? When are you leaving? I said, No, no, no. I said, I wanted time to think about it. And they said, you bloody fool, would you call him <laughs> up now and say you'd take the job? But I was quite, I was really quite surprised that I got, because I don't think I, I never thought I was that really very good about it, really. But
0: I mean, that was a very tough gig, As your first gig as a reporter was to report on the troubles in Northern Ireland. What are your, what are your memories now, looking back at that? What do you, what do I you was,
1: remember? I was terrified. My point about doing Northern Ireland was, for me, very simple. I was... I never lost my shock at being employed by ITN, and so I made a condition. Well, I thought I made a condition, which was that I would do everything every other reporter did. I did not want to be a black reporter. Right. I, I had no interest at all in in, in that. Um, I'm black West Indian. That's what I am. I can't change that. I did not want to live my life continually in that in that channel to be seen as such. So. I demanded to be sent on everything that every other reporter, and of course, Northern Ireland was the big story, Um, and I and I was absolutely terrified. I'd never been in a place where people shot at each other and where, you know, I mean, in Trinidad, you know, there were rum shop rows on Saturday night, (laughs) and people took the machetes with each other and so on. But but that was it. Nothing like bombs and so on. So I, I I found it very 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 challenging. But it was my own. Was my own fault in a way.
0: What, what preparation were you given before you went to, to you know? I mean, a, ostensibly a war zone in its way. I mean. Yeah,
1: um, <laughs> I think human resources might have something to say about that these days, but not yes. not a great deal. Um, not 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 a great deal. And you know, throughout your career, you're not really told very much, and you end up in these places without very much. I remember before going into the Middle East for one one bout of, um, of, of you know, crisis. Um, there was a man who came and gave us a lesson about uh, these, the gas which can, you know, kill you in seconds and so on. And you had to put on a, a, a you know, the clothes ha- which... Sort you of hazard there, suits. And things. all that sort of yes. stuff. And um, I remember I went to him and I said, do, do you know, I, I can't get this on in in required time to I've tried several times. I just can't. I'm physically very clumsy about this. And he said to me, he said, don't say anything to anybody, but if this thing happens, you'll be dead before you can so 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 don't don't worry too much. And I, and I, I've, always, I've, I've always thought that's a, it's a very good thing. I mean you can be you can be a little too careful. But my care was in, in cowardice, um, the, the, a hatred of guns and violence. I always ran away from anything that looked terribly dangerous, and um, I never found one of those places which I thought is somewhere I wanted to, to lose my life. So I, I, I managed to do it that way.
0: What about the the actual journalistic sensibility of reporting from I, the Philippines there, and this is where Cory Aquino was was, right. mm. was challenging um, the power. To explain that and to try to communicate with people who are in their sitting rooms, on their draylon sofa, they've just had their tea, and why the hell should they care about the Philippines? What what did you learn in those early days about, about trying to connect the audience at home with a story that you were telling from far away?
1: I, you 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 put it perfectly i i, I think you've hit at the, the core of what any good journalistic r- reporting is 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 about how do you make somebody sitting I- in their house in 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 kent or someone in essex or wherever in scotland interested in in what what these people call isis are doing how how do you how do you make it not only accessible. How do you make it understandable? How do you make it relevant to their lives? And um, and that's the key. Um, in the Philippines case, it was almost kind of easy because this man Marcus, had been a crook for a long time, mm. and had had um, and and Cori Aquino represented something which was different. And we all thought she would she she would win. What was nice about that story for me, I never forget, and I'm always grateful for, is that it's very rare that you're able to see. Something begin, and end. you know you, you always pulled away at the, just at the, the, the crucial moment. I was there at the beginning of that revolution, and I saw its end. I remember very well the night Marcus left. Somebody came running through the corridor of the hotel saying, "He's gone, he's gone." And, um, and we ended up as I think you probably saw there outside the palace where people were rather naughtily firing bullets at us, which I never recognised even as bullets until bits of tarmac came, (laughs) sort of um, was dug up around me.
0: And that was for Channel 4 News. That was for Channel 4 News. You you won a BAFTA for that coverage of the Philippines election. I mean, it's very interesting to, to hear you say, and I'm sure there'll be people watching tonight who remember when it was possible for a reporter to be there and to see a story through from the start to the end. It's, it's
1: rather nice, isn't it? It's that,
0: kind of... These days, a great indulgence, yeah. actually, not to be sent and brought back and yeah. there's no more, yeah. often not a bureau there. When you look at that time, uh, with the perspective you have now as a newsman of many, many decades, does it seem like a, a sort of, in its way, a golden time, a time of in, indulgence for news reporters? I, I,
1: I really I, I enjoyed the fact that I thought... After about a month, I thought I was finally beginning to understand what was going on there. Yeah. Um, I have always found, I mean, you, you put it very well, it's not always easy or, to put it more crudely, it's terribly difficult to get into a situation and, and understand what's going on sufficiently to make it intelligible to people who are watching. I mean, how does one understand or try to, to explain to anybody what's going on in Syria? I mean, I, I sit at home now and wonder uh, and can't make head or tail of it. And and incidentally, I mean, I have such great admiration for people who do that now. I would never be near that stuff now. Is that true? Absolutely not. Well, I think I would not be anyway. I (laughs) think... I like to think I would. I'd, I'd like to think I've had a little more sense. I've, I've grown up a little more. You,
0: your career has been peppered by these great landmark interviews, and 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 those are the situations that, no matter what reporters will say, that that's what they're all waiting for. They're yeah. waiting for the big one, and you, and you have had a lots of great interviews. I, w- I want to take you back for a moment to, to 1988. It was Libya's Colonel Gaddafi. Ah, controversial So much stuff. to say. I know. Um, Let's start first of all with the. Logistics of landing it where did that begin How, uh,
1: uh, uh, that's a very very good question, and I'm not too sure I remember to be very honest. Um, I was very, very lucky in being asked there was a period in ITN where if Gunnar Gaddafi was to be interviewed, I was asked to do it. If Hillary Clinton was about to, I was asked to do it so I, I got the you know by a lot of stroke of luck I, I, I worked these things too i mean i Called them up a lot lot and and convinced them that they should see me, and I did. Who who did? Who do you call? I I call. I started with the embassy here, and then I called. I got to know people there, and I actually got to know one of his sons, sort of peripherally. Um, I'm glad it was peripherally. Um, And
0: uh, not the one with the golden gun. Well, the one with the golden gun probably
1: Yes, I I saw. I met him to a couple of of times, and I always, I I used to, I lied about what I, how I would do this, and I said to him, I said. I also do the news on television, you know, I would boast. and um, <laughs> So, if I come on Thursday, I must see your man on Friday because I'm doing the news on Monday, right. and I must do it. And, and they fell for this uh, the, a lot of the times. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> although in his case, he decided, uh, I, I must tell, tell the story. Colonel he, Gaddafi he... was a showman. I'm sure he was, he was corrupt and he did awful things to his people, but he was a showman. He, and he wanted to show how brilliant he was in improving relations with Tunisia so he took us down to the Tunisian border I'm sure it was only for the benefit of the ITN and cameras and to demonstrate that he was sort of establishing better relations with Tunisia he would demolish this customs post and he, he got into a JCB and and you know that those things with the, the, yeah. the big fronts which which yeah. no the only problem he couldn't drive it <laughs> and and the, the, the thing was pretty large, but he kept missing the post. <laughs> and then he wouldn't go back to Tripoli, where I thought I was to do the interview that night, and said, would I spend the night in the desert with him? And I said, no, I would prefer to go back to my hotel room in Tripoli. <laughs> and um, he did this thing, he wanted to prove that he was a Bedouin at heart. Yes, And so he would occasionally go off into the desert and spend the night, I suppose very comfortably. But I, I had a drink and went back to Tripoli.
0: Uh, what, was there a point in the interview, and, and I think for anybody who who has been in that situation, they might recognise it, where you think, oh, that's the line, that's going to be the headline, what he's just said. Was, can you remember he, that? My,
1: my my headline, which I don't think I got, not in many interviews, I didn't get very many, but um, was about his support for the IRA. And, and he denied. And, of course, we know that that was... Uh, denial was rubbish. Um, he, he did supply arms to the IRA. He supplied arms to a lot of unpalatable people all over the place. Um, but I must tell you, though, that I, he was extraordinarily generous in one way. I don't know whether you've picked up on that halting English. I, yes. I begged him to do it in English, which he said I haven't done interviews in English for a long time. And long after I did it, somebody said to me, "I saw you interviewing that crook Gaddafi, and he was so halting in his answers that I knew he was (laughs) being, you know, uh, he was not telling the truth. In fact, I think that was probably because he was being very kind and did it in English to please me, which I begged him to do because, you know, we don't like translations much in British television, do we? You know, we don't. We like people talking in, you know, in our language."
0: It, it sounds like a, a lot of the time you employed a great deal of personal charm.
1: Would that well, be fair? I don't know. He offered me a job. <laughs> what was Gaddafi. the job? Um, he, he said to me, he, he was very. He said, how did you come to... And many people in the Middle East always, it was a line of questioning, they always say, how did you ever end up working in England? And I said, well, look, this is a long, boring story, but you must understand Trinidad was a colony of the British Empire, and... The Metropolitan Centre of all our lives was London, and we all aspired to work in London. Um, And he said to me, "Why didn't you come and work for me?" As as somebody famously said, I think in a Times interview, I made my excuses and left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course. I mean, it is, it is fascinating and charming to hear th- these stories. And you are somebody who desperately underplays any, any sort of danger or crisis that you've ever been in. But you have reported from a lot of dangerous places. You've had colleagues, of course, who have lost their lives, not least Terry Lloyd in 2003 and two colleagues at ICN. Um, they were killed in Iraq. Um, you spent time, of course, in Iraq. How much did you fear for the, the the safety of your crew and and for yourself at any
1: point? I I was uh, well I was a, I was a confirmed coward. So I I always I was always worried. I mean and I always did everything I could to get away from anything which looked terribly gender- dangerous. You know, I would send if there was a roadblock in 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 Beirut or in Baghdad I would send the driver to ask the uh ask the people to lift the barriers, you know, and and I would say tell them that I'm an international reporter and they can't bar me from going there. And the driver would come back and say, well, they, they threatened to shoot me. Um, and um, you may go, but I'm not going. Right. So I, I, I always found a way of getting around it. But I mean, you were, you, you were worried. It's amazing how, how many times you found ways of getting around things. I remember in Beirut in particular, um, I got rather tired. There was a drive from Beirut to Damascus. There was no television station in Beirut, so you had to take the stuff to Damascus. I did the drive a couple of times, and on the way back, as it got dark, I thought it was rather dangerous. So you would give a guy a 100 bucks at the Commodore Hotel in Beirut, and say, would you take this tape to Damascus Television? Um, And then you would sit in the bar and wait for a call from London to say, we've just seen your pictures, Mm. and I thought, what wonderful people that they never took my hundred dollars and disappeared with the tape, <laughs> in, into the into the into the hills. You know, so that you, you found ways of getting around it. I, you know, I.
0: There are many uh, foreign reporters who, and I'm sure you might have met some who, in a sense, only really seem alive when they're in danger zones. They they come home and they they're they're sort of half living in a newsroom when they're not on location and they're not in a flak jacket. You don't strike me as ever having been one of those. I have a serious
1: dislike of that. Right. Um, and I remember very well when I was in Dhran in Saudi Arabia when it looked as though there was going to be a second Gulf War or the, 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 in, 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 the, in the Middle East, and I hated it. And I, yeah. I have the greatest respect and so on for my colleagues. I, I didn't get on very well with those who couldn't wait to. Get off there. I, I mean, but maybe it was just. I also thought wars are always a failure of diplomacy. And I was, I, I've always felt there must be some better way of organising our lives without shooting at each other. There must, must be a better way. I know there's an inevitability about some conflicts, especially in the era of the military-industrial complex where people want, if anything, to show off their weapons. You know, Th- they want to be able to fire these nice new missiles at somebody else. But I hated the idea of conflict. I-, I had to spend a little of my life doing it. But I secretly, I always disliked it. I disliked the effect it had on people's lives. You know, we saw the missiles and so on, but you're seeing a little bit of it now in, in, in the refugees. It's catastrophic. That, that this sort of thing should degenerate into this lack of humanity and uh, awful—I hate—I hated most of that.
0: It was 1990 when you interviewed Saddam Hussein. What a very, very clever opening question to pin him to the wall with, Saddam Hussein. That was a very un-Arab thing to do. How long did it take you to formulate that cracker? <laughs> there is,
1: there is a, there is a, a long story to that which uh, I, I shan't bore you with, but.
0: Well, borders a uh, well, little. Well, bit. well, a
1: little, a little bit. Um, we we were under pressure to to do to be tough. I I had to be seen yes. to be tough. At one stage, in fact, uh, and this is telling inst- intel stories, uh, you know, about ITN and ITV and so on here. But um, it was said that th- there was a the perception that Saddam Hussein was so beyond the pale he shouldn't be interviewed. Um, I said well, we would have wanted to interview Adolf Hitler. So. I see no reason why we shouldn't. Yes. And um, some of the companies in the ITV conglomeration said, if this interview is not tough enough, we shan't run it. So I was sent to Iraq to do an interview, which may not be seen on television. And I resolved that I had to be very, very, very tough. To to cut this long, boring story short, I, well, years, well, not years later, when the war actually started, I went to see the man in London who had partly helped arrange this interview. And um, he said to me, he said, you know, Trevor, there's something I always wanted to say to you. And he said, um, you were bloody rude to my president. <laughs> and, and his words were not bloody. He, yes. he didn't say bloody. He, um, but he said, but I, I felt I, I had to do it. Do you know... I am not sure I would do that again. I didn't think it was that a brilliant way to begin an interview. If you're trying to get things out of people, I'm not too sure insulting them in that way is a great idea. I'm not sure I would do that again.
0: Do you go back? I mean, I sense that you're not somebody who will you know, of an evening with uh, whiskey and soda, sit and watch your greatest moments? Do you you tend not to I've never
1: seen that interview. Right. It was rather tedious. The the interesting thing for me about that, though, is what that whole occasion taught me about Saddam Hussein and the regime. There were half a dozen people from his inner cabinet sitting in on this interview. And we'd been given a tough time in the run-up to the interview, you know, taking on false runs to interviews which never happened, to places where they would never happen. And it was a very bad scene. And I, although I was taking, I think, what are now called downers, and Ms. Sharapova would probably regret taking them, but um, (laughs) uh, um, um, to to keep myself calm and so on, (laughs) I, I, I did lose my temper when these people sat, all these ministers sat in my interview space. And I said, don't you guys have anything else to do? This, after all, is a television interview with your president. What's so strange about it? And the guy made a very significant comment, one of the ministers. He said, you have no idea the significance of this. We never, ever see him questioned. We never see him questioned. So those cabinet shots which you saw on the television, nobody ever asked a question. And in fact, before the war with Iran, one minister who challenged him, was taken outside, shot, and Saddam walked back in and continued as though nothing had happened. Um, well, so during that, during those tough questions, then did you? He 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 didn't
0: look cheerful. I he, mean, he did was you, he was not did you very fear happy for about, your about own
1: that. Safety? I I was worried about getting out um, of of Iraq in one piece after that. And um,
0: w- was there any moment when you almost didn't?
1: I I, tr- I tried to leave very early the following morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and managed to. I don't think in all the things I have done, I have ever been so worried about sitting opposite to somebody with that reputation. I was genuinely worried, and the security people didn't make it easy either. Terribly, terribly interestingly, I think. Nobody else does these days, it's become so common. Um, They took our shoes off. And I was saying to my colleagues, I said, why are they looking at our shoes? We, we know now um, but they were way ahead of that guy who tried to bomb the shoe bomb the Iraqi security service made us take our shoes off How and, they were, and they were they this were were
0: 1990 and they
1: were they were they, they almost took bits of the leather off and so on and I was uh, I've always thought that's just one fascinating detail but the other thing too is you, you realized what a hold he had on the country and the way he ran the country was reflected in the way security people behaved. After the interview, I discovered that my hotel room was invaded by um, half a dozen people from the Ministry of Information. And they kept saying to me, um, what was it like? What, how did it go? And I was so obsessed by this interview, for the reasons that I've explained, that I started talking about the interview and the mechanics of the interview. They were asking me, what was he like? Goodness me. I had sat in a room with somebody for whom they worked for a number of years but who they would never, ever meet. And whenever you talk to people in Iraq about, you know, you have discussion with them, and you mention the name President Saddam Hussein, he he terrified the people there.
0: 1990 then was, I mean, it was a year of, of extremes, I think, for you because you conducted that interview and it was also the year that you returned after many visits to South Africa to conduct the interview with the then uh, newly released ANC leader, uh, Nelson Mandela. Just give us an insight as to, I mean, it was the, you know, goodness knows, it was the interview everybody wanted. How did it come about? And in knowing that you were going to meet this man, what were your your personal feelings?
1: I, I was... Um slightly reprimanded by the editor of IT and still then man called Nigel Ryan, who, and I said, in answer to your question, I was overwhelmed at meeting Mandela. I am a black man, and South Africa, under apartheid, represented to me all that is horrible about human life, and I couldn't work out how they got away with it for so long. Yes. And to have somebody like that who came out and who immediately embraced the concept of, you know, racial harmony and that everybody should have a part. So I I was terribly, terribly chuffed about doing that. And, and I mean, I, I...
0: And what did you say to Nigel that sort of cheesed him off? No, I didn't.
1: No, no, He, I, I said, um, I think on the tape it was, I, I said, um, Mr. Mandela, it's an honor to meet you.
0: This, of course, I, I mean, a moment of enormous significance for you personally, but even greater than that, the world is watching, the world is listening for everything that drops from this man's lips. It is a signal to the people who are led by this man it is a moment when South Africa could could have turned on a coin. Yeah, How aware were you of the importance? Well, I, I, of that? I wasn't
1: aware of it in the sense, in the way you put it there. I mean, um, but, it, but, that, uh, but but that. But that is what it was. True, yes. What, what what struck me and what, you know, I mean, we couldn't quite believe it. I put it to him, in the course of this interview, that there was absolutely no way that he could come to an accommodation with the, yes. with the National Party. I said, it's just your, your views are absolutely, uh, you know, implacably opposed to each other. This, this thing is not going to fly. It's not going to work. And he said, if you were sincere and if you want to negotiate in good faith, everything is possible. And I said, no, 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 everything is not possible. Some things are possible, and you could agree on peripheral issues, but on fundamental core issues, you can't. You must stick by, your, by what you believe. He said, no, no, no. If you are in a situation like this, and you really mean to succeed, you must be prepared to compromise on everything. I, I, I was blown, over, blown away by that. I couldn't believe that somebody would say that.
0: Did you feel personally changed by that encounter?
1: I, I, I had a respect for him which began there. I mean, I was terribly lucky and I saw a lot of him throughout the years in many, many occasions. Um, but that changed my view of international politics and it made me, I referred to it earlier, hate conflicts even more. Because what he's proposed, which could be a kind of universal solution to many problems, um, was that if you are genuinely prepared to compromise, you can avoid conflict. And for as long as he was there, and the transformation in South Africa has been a, a peaceful one. I mean, it, it was—it was one of the most extraordinary things of my of my life to meet him. It was. It was absolutely. And I, I, I mean, if I can just bore, bore you one moment further, I mean, the, the, the thing which his 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 humility was just. The, the most wonderful thing you could. The day after, uh, or, or later that day after that interview, the crowds were all outside his house and they kept clamoring for him to make a speech. He's not a good speech maker. He was not a good speech maker. He couldn't, he's not a great orator, um, never was, and um, didn't want to speak. But of course they were standing there. they have been there the night before on News at 10 and then you know jumping up and down. And he went out and he talked to them and he began by saying, I have one thing to say to you today, all you young people, go back to school. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> oh, pardon? I mean, and then to, to make, to compound that, he said, um, Walter Sisulu and I, who is standing next to him, uh, and I are old men now. We shan't be here for very long. He was released 48 hours before, <laughs> and he's already talking about his political mortality. Unheard of. In the world of politics. There was, in my book, there has been nobody ever like him. By
0: 1992, you're anchoring. News at 10, and then you went on to host Tonight with Trevor MacDonald. That earned you in the first series two BAFTA nominations. Being the anchor, going from being the reporter out in the field to being the anchor of especially uh, News at 10, was the job that everybody wanted and you got it. What, what did it feel like when you made that transition of being the reporter out on the road to being the guy with his, well, can I say his bum in the butter? Can we say that? To, to, to have the cushy job, to have the job everybody
1: wants? Um, I, I don't... I hardly remember. I, I I remember contemplating what I would do if I didn't get it. Because if you have two anchors on an evening, then there are about five or six of you when you consider the different permutations. When you go down to one, mm. there's just one or probably two. So there weren't a lot of options open if you didn't get it. Um, so I seriously thought I would go go to some parts of Africa or something and do a charitable work. I it it I was really worried about what what and and um I don't suppose um you know living with me was was very good th- then because I I I had no idea what I would do if, if I didn't get it.
0: So are you saying you really, really wanted it, you put yourself forward for it and that was that was the only thing you wanted. By that point the only thing you wanted to
1: well, do. Well I, I had to only really want it but <laughs> I knew there was the competition was, I mean, there were, you know, there were colleagues who were absolutely brilliant. And I, up to the last moment, I was desperately unsure about whether I would ever get it.
0: So how did you get it? How did you secure it? Go on. Tell
1: us. Mm-hmm. Well, if there were the usual fivers, there must have been somebody else's. But <laughs> I don't, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm told when people want to be extraordinarily kind to me, I'm told there was a kind of survey about w- what people would want to, to do this program and um, that I didn't do too badly in the survey. But I, I really, I find it very, very difficult. And I've always said, no matter how good you think you do your job, you need a good slice of luck. And I thought I was just terribly, terribly lucky.
0: Young reporters, when they embark on their young reporting life, of course they have the callowness of youth and they can do a lot of things that actually, in retrospect, they think... <sighs> Did I really ask that? Did I really do, Did I really say that on television? As you matured through through the role, and as you became, you know, the, the guy in the newsroom who people looked to, the guy who'd done the Saddam Hussein interview, who'd been in the Philippines, who'd, who'd won all the awards, what did you see around you that that sort of made you mature and sink differently? Did Did your approach change as you became, you know, as you became, as you got married, as you became a father, as you got older?
1: I became more convinced about the importance of news. I, I, I always did, and I, I never ceased to strive to try to find better ways of doing what we did. And I suppose that's why I became a bit of a bore, really. I, I've, I've always felt, you, you know, we, we today, we, and, and in you know, the last few years, we've been telling the people in Iraq and the people in Afghanistan and so on, be like us, be, be a pluralistic democratic society. Inform your people about what's going on. The business of telling people what's going on in their own lives, in their own countries is desperately, desperately important. I mean, news is the lifeblood of, of, of democracy. The information is the lifeblood of, of, of democracy. And um, I was obsessed by the importance of this. And so what happened was that I, I worked rather hard at it. And, and this isn't news. Anchoring is, is not so much a job as a vocation. You can't, for example, on a Sunday night ignore what's happening if you're going to be in the office on Monday. Do you know? So it's. Yes. you're the, living the, and breathing the, it. You, you, you live and breathe it. And I probably did a little too much because I. But I, I was obsessed by how vital this was to the society that we all aspire.
0: It is the case, though, surely, that people can, and I'm talking about now as much as any time at all, people can, can watch the news, they absorb it. For the moment that they're watching it, hopefully they're engaged in it. But you know as well as I do that people say, well, what I really remembered is, did I like the guy's tie? and <clears throat> what was the weather? You know, do, do you yes. feel that news can materially change the way people, you know, exercise their democratic votes? their attitudes to, to foreign policy, their attitude to how they want to bring up their children, their attitude to where they want to live. Do you, do you think it can fundamentally change people's attitudes? Well,
1: that's a good question. I, I mean, the way you put it, I, I'd be terrified of answering yes to all that, but, but I do believe or in its... Or to any of it. Or to any of it. I mean, but I do believe in its importance. I think what you're referring to is more relevant in the kind of multiplicity of channels from which we now get our news. I think it's much more disparate. It's much more chopped up. I think um, uh, people have a greater, greater variety, and they can make up their minds about small bits from from various sides of it. So I, I think it's become m- much more, much more difficult now. But I still believe in its fundamental importance, even now. And I'm no longer involved, and I still want to throw things to television when I see things which I don't agree with.
0: Um, we've seen some of the the. Um, statuesque uh, world leaders that you've interviewed, you've also interviewed Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, George W. Bush, Um, we saw earlier, Tony Blair. You've seen power, and it's goodness knows it's a fascinating thing when you get very close to it, at very, very close quarters. I'd be very interested on your view of how, how power changes men and women, how you think it's well, I was going to say compromises at them, and that shows my own prejudice. But but what you make of how power can influence human beings? Because in yeah. the end, that's what they are.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I know really. Um, to be very honest, I've I've been fascinated watching it operate. I I also been fascinated by the way people view their power. And and um, I would never ever forget J- J- Bush the younger. I had a, 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 what I thought was a great, great question for him, on which, as I said before, I spent a lot of time. And I, I said, you know, what, what, being president, what, what is it that worries you most? You know, that, 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 that call at two in the morning, when you know because of who you are, it may be a world-shattering, world-changing yes. event, and you have to be involved in making a decision about what happens, you know. And so I framed this question, I thought, with great skill and. And, and, and scholarly uh, thought. And, um, and I said, what have you learned most about where you sit now? And he said, I've learned there's good and evil and I must be on the side of the good. Mm. And I just thought, what the hell do I say <laughs> <What>? <laughs> If there's this guy who absolutely believes there's you know, good and evil and he's on the side of the good, then I, you know, I'm, and I, I stumbled to, to think. And I... I was, I was fascinated by, by, by his view of, and, but, and that's what, by the way...
0: And such a telling answer that in its way, It was, way, was yes.
1: absolutely honest, straightforward. That is what he was. Yeah. He believed certain things and that's what he was going to believe about it and you couldn't change his mind.
0: In 2005 then, you retired after 30 years. ITN, but it was three short years later that you decided that you were going to return to report on the American presidential uh, elections. What changed your mind? I I, was, you I, I,
1: mean, I I was terribly chuffed about the possibility of a man called Obama, uh, even worse as the <laughs> New Yorker magazines put it, sort of, a name who was a sort of catastrophe, uh, you know, Barack Hussein Obama becoming president of the United States. And um, um, I had spent... A lot of time in the, the South of America, uh, and it was fascinating to watch people there contemplate the mere possibility of somebody like that becoming. And they, they wouldn't believe it. I mean, they, they, you know, I would say, "There, but come on, you guys, you know, black mayor in Selma." And I said to him, your, your, "Your man's going to walk it, you know, John McCain or whoever it is, Romney or you know, these these guys, you know, they, you know they, they, they know." And they said, "Ah, but." You never know what people will do when they get into the, the secrecy of that voting booth and what they'll do. So it was, I mean, it was a great a great thing to do. It,
0: it is probably the greatest privilege, I would guess, of, of being an anchor or being a reporter, to, to be there at those moments of, as, as we saw there with Mandela, and again when you were reporting in 2008 on the American elections. Can you describe to us what it actually feels like to to soar on the wave of that moment of world history where you think never before and probably well never again because this is the first time what what does what does it feel like
1: personally oh, I, mean, I mean just I mean you you describe it much better than I could I mean it's just sensational it's an absolutely wonderful wonderful feeling but you know we are all we are all human when I first went to America to cover presidential campaigns when I bored my friends in the pub what I said is do you know? Last week I was at the back of Air Force One. You know, <laughs> with the, uh, you know, it's the, those bits which which you also remember. So yes, of course, you you on reflection you you are consumed by the kind of importance of this uh, event. But you know, at the time you look at little little bits and pieces. I remember, in the on the Obama thing, it was a freezing day. Um, but walking through the crowds, uh, the biggest crowd ever assembled in Washington, and yes. in his, his inauguration, and um, and talking to people who who just said, you know, I can't believe I'm alive. I, I this isn't really happening. You know, here's a, um, a a a man, a black man, walking into a, a a white house built by slaves. This is not happening. You know, so it, it, you you do you are as you you said you you are consumed by this, by the moment.
0: 2009 marked the beginning of your sort of concerted documentary <laughs> career. Concerted. <laughs> well, I mean, insofar as you know, you had made uh, stuff before that could be sort of quantified as documentary, more long-form stuff. They kept um,
1: asking me back. I yeah, I know because. Why.
0: News people, you know, they have a short attention span. They're very, very impatient. They like to see it get out on the night, and it's all finished, and they go and do it again tomorrow, mm-hmm. and if it was rubbish last mm-hmm. night, they can make it better today. Documentary making is far, far different from that. How did you find that it suited you in the beginning? It,
1: it, well, not suited me at all. I mean, I was led all the way, as I've been led all the way in <laughs> most of my career by by colleagues. You, right. you know, I, I couldn't do this on my own. I had never made... You, you're absolutely right. You, you, News at 10, the piece is two and a half minutes long. It's gone, yes. Uh, To get people's attention today to watch 25 minutes, it has to be skillfully, skillfully done. And in those documentaries, you rely on your colleagues. You rely, I mean, in my case, entirely on your colleagues. Um, uh, The people who do the research, who who get the stuff, and the people who manage to get those people before the camera. Um, And some of the people that I have talked to in, in programs I've done, in the documentaries, quite frankly, you know, you could put a five year old before these people and they'll get the same that, that, that I did out of them because the stories were those people. They were just magnificent. And the greatness of those programs were in the people who organized getting, you know, those people to get, to appear and sit and talk to me.
0: What about being away for a long time with a crew? I mean,
1: they've got to be people
0: you get on with. you got to oh, like you, their you,
1: company. Oh, you, you, you have to. And, 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 and that's what I say. I mean, the, 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 the fascinating thing about television, and which is why I have this, this, this nagging worry about the celebrity age and so on, television is the most collaborative thing in the, in the, in the world. Um, you know, to appear in Soweto, there must be 50 other people yes. in ITN who make that image possible. The thought that you are the most important people in this is crazy, it's, it's rubbish. It's, it's not true and the documentaries i mean show this much more than anything else to, to 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 find these people who talk you through these fascinating stories that's really the the key well once once you get them as i say i'm pretty sure you know you can get a you can get a fairly bright five year old to to get them to talk to talk talking through it
0: how much convincing did you take in production meetings when they said to you, we've got a great idea for your next series. We'd like you to meet the guys on death row who are responsible for the worst crimes humanly possible. We'd like you to meet them face to face. What was your gut? My gut feeling
1: was how horrible. I I have a dislike of any kind of violence. I don't understand most crimes. I've lived a pretty, Hmm. I must be careful how I say this, pretty sheltered life. and so I, it, 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 it took a lot of, I, I had no idea what it'd be like, I mean, to right. be very honest. And I was fascinated, I suppose, by the fact that I didn't know what it was going to be like. Okay. And I, I couldn't, I didn't know what to make of these people. I, I, and it was their ability to talk about their lives and about what they had done so clearly. And it's a life so alien. to to mine. I sat on the bed of this guy who'd killed two people in the most horrendous way. And I I, I did, when I went back to my hotel that night, I thought, you know, I I was in the cell of this guy who's cut the throats of two people and um, talking to him about his crimes. You must find a better life, I tell myself, (laughs) you know. Um, But but in the end, there's something sort of, fascinating about listening to people. I, uh, I, I have one favorite memory, I sa- said to one guy on the cell, I said, you know, what, what is it like, again, not a brilliant question, what is it like when somebody from your cell is taken away to be executed? And, you know, not a particularly brilliant question, you know, it's a pretty average question, really. And he gave, I thought the most brilliant answer I've ever heard anything, I said to Morgan Freeman, I said, um, my guy was better than any of your guys in Shawshank Redemption <laughs> because he said to me, he said, you know, he screwed his eyes, his eyes up and he looked at me and he said, ah, oh, he said, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, you see this guy every day. You share meals together. You go to the play, play area together, exercise yard together. And then one day he comes to you and he says, I got to go, man.
0: Hmm.
1: And he said, you know when he says that, um, that's the last you'll see of him because he's going to march down them steps, he said, and they're going to kill him. And I just, I sat there and I thought, you know, I couldn't have written yeah. a more brilliant answer. So there's, there's, there's such a lot of humanity even, you know, even in these outrageous circumstances in in hearing people emote about, you know, this, awful slice of their lives, it's just... It was called, of course, Inside Death Row.
0: In, in in all the work that you do, you always maintain a decency and I would say a scrupulous integrity in the way that you address your subjects. Oh, Kirsty, that's terribly kind. Can I write that down? <laughs> and Take that with me. I, I say it because I think it's true. When you come up against, and I'm not talking about the individuals, but I'm talking about their circumstances, the worst that humanity is capable of, yeah. when you meet it at such close quarters, what does that do for you? What do, What do you come away thinking about that? It's a,
1: bril- I mean, it's a brilliant question because um, we talked a lot about that. My position, before I talk about what I come away with, going into it was... I am not going there to condemn these guys. They've been condemned. That's done. Uh, that's, I, I'm no judge. I'm, you know, what I want to do is to turn my camera on to, to hear their stories. That, that's what we, we, we try to do. The um, you, you, other bit of your question, though, is I, I do find it difficult to get those people out of my mind. I, I there are not many days where somebody would mention the word prison where I, I have not thought of yes. that guy, Sanford. Um,
0: what um, is it you think, is is that to do with um, the Western or particularly the American criminal justice system where still juveniles can be sentenced and yeah, treated yeah, as adults yeah. within prison? And well, I
1: mean, that's to particularize it perhaps a little too much. Yes, I do think about that too. But the, the, the thing that stays with you more is this. this... this Feeling of this catalogue of human misery. Yes. Uh, and, and Do you feel sort of drenched? In I, it? I, I t- totally. I. behaved I was staying. We stayed at a, at a, uh, at a, uh, what's it called? A, a, a casino motel, to, to to go to that prison, and it was a very odd place. We were probably the only people there. The f- five of us were the only people there, who weren't gambling. Right. So you were sent off to your rooms at an entirely different way from the casino. And mine was a particularly long walk down the corridor uh, after dinner, and I would get very nervous about taking this walk, and I would get up and double lock my room and, and, and do odd things like that. And I couldn't get those guys yeah. out of my head. I just and and even now, as I say on occasions, I'm not too sure. I I just I, it's it's a million miles from anything I know and. However much you talk to them, you can't get them out of your head.
0: Speaking of a million miles from anything, you know what? The Mafia.
1: Oh, yes. Other nice guys. He's another guy I've never forgotten. (laughs) I (laughs) bet. Um, um, um,
0: This guy had never given an interview before. How did the producer uh, and the researcher. Well, well, as I say,
1: I I, I said before, I mean, you know, nothing to do with me at at, at all. it's, the, the, you know, the the, the, the team, uh, you know... Can
0: you give me a little snapshot of what surrounds in production terms on the day that you've got the interview? Yeah. Do you know where you're going? Do you know if he's going to turn up?
1: Yeah. Do you very know if he's going to have his people with him? Yes. I, I make sure the crew knows. <laughs> I, I, and I ask a lot of boring questions. I think it was well arranged, but you, you, there's a very perceptive thing, because we weren't sure about whether he, whether he will, and he gave us, I think, some problems, I'm right in saying, um, uh, about, you know, agreeing to this. And it was very funny, in the little street in New York, and I think it was the morning I actually flew back to London that night. So it was done that very morning, and, and you could, if you look carefully around the street, you could see that he had a lot of minders around the place. right? Um, because he was, he's a, you know, a serious serial criminal guy, and... Um, why, why
0: did he give the interview?
1: I, I, that it's another interesting point. My view, for what it's worth, of the mafia was that we see it as a criminal organisation in a kind of one-dimensional way. It's, it's a kind of career, and it's a, it's a religion to them. And in an oddly paradoxical way, they are very proud of what they did.
0: Right.
1: He... I said to him... Philadelphia mob man. I said, you know, how do you sleep at night having killed all these people? And he said, <laughs> it was very amusing. He said, um, oh, I, I sleep absolutely fine. He said, of course, at my age. He's in his eighties. He said, um, he said I have to get up for the odd pee at night, <laughs> but but um, he said, but other than that, I I, I sleep like a child.
0: Do, do you have any concerns about the fact? And of course, there's a whole industry now that surrounds criminality. You know, there's a publishing industry, there's a documentary industry of actually there is a conferred glamour upon these subjects by virtue of the fact that we even bother to make
1: television documentaries yeah, yeah. about them. Do, does that concern you at all? It, 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 no, it, it doesn't. I tell you, I've, I've never thought about that so seriously. I mean, I, I think that has to be dealt with in the approach. Um, right. Whereas you're not overly censorious about what they did, okay. um, you also make sure that you say to people, I mean, I, why your question is a brilliant one is I, I rather liked Sanford, the guy before in the film, yes. the young man. And so I remembered just listening to it now, I hadn't thought about it before, um, putting in, and probably the producers had a lot to do with it as well, um, putting in that line about, for this vile act. Yes. In other words, I was terribly, terribly careful in making sure that my sympathy for his state now does not in any way ignore the fact that he killed two people yeah. for nothing for five dollars um, and that must always be at the forefront and so hopefully that gets over the point you make about not being seen to glamorize in any way by saying, Wh- whatever you think, you know these guys did kill people um, and for absolutely no reason because they wouldn't allow them to cut the grass I mean
0: we're going to take a look now at your most uh, recent documentary. Oh, is there more? Oh, it's called Las Vegas. Let's talk for a moment about Mike Tyson. Yeah, I know,
1: it, he's not the most brilliant. I didn't get a lot out of him, did I? I don't think I did. He well, was, uh... I don't
0: know, because I think that actually often, well, not often, because he didn't give very many interviews, but on the occasions when I have seen Mike Tyson articulate his experience, the thing that always strikes me is... He's blinking, articulate. I mean, th- this is a guy with a yeah. vocabulary who 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 is a th- a thoughtful man. What what struck you when you were talking to him? Um, I,
1: <laughs> gosh,
0: not I, that. Yeah. Did you think something different? Or no, I, th- I I mean I,
1: I thought he was very difficult and he was very defensive and I thought that, he had decided the parameters within which he would, operate during this interview okay. and he would not go outside that. Um, I must also say a little immodestly that I think he was rather. Um, interested in who I was. After after the interview, he he said to me, uh, Americans can't understand this thing about knighthoods. And and quite rightly. (laughs) Yeah, they've got got a point, Trevor. I think they're very lucky not to get involved in this rubbish. I I, I, I once had a conversation with President Bush about this, and I made the terrible mistake in saying that they're, they're pretty worthless. And he said, don't say that, my father has one. Um, and this was, he Father got an honorary knighthood. But Mike Tyson said to me at the end of the interview, he said, I, he said, I, kept, being, I kept being fascinated about this, this black knight. I, I said, no, you, you're making a terrible mistake. I'm not really a knight in shining armour at all. I said, it's a, it's a title which, which, you know, oh, uh, you may have v- different views about. But he, he was really... He was really keen at, uh, about uh, about this uh, and he he was very interested in in, in in black history and so on of America, and i was that surprised me about him, but he the the thing in t- televisual terms, which I think I went away with, was that he and his wife had decided exactly what they will do, and right. they did that and not a scintilla more. right um, they were absolutely you know I, I thought we were. Really properly handled in, by, by by them in that interview. Should we we I didn't we didn't come away shouting. Oh, away, <laughs> you know, you know, as, as sometimes you do as we did when we interviewed that mafia guy <clears throat> who killed 23 people or whatever it was. Um, uh, you know, I we thought Tyson had given us a bit of a runaround. You know, um,
0: did you gamble a buck in Las Vegas? Did you go to I the am, table? I am I am a
1: boring non-gambler. I I I. I I've discovered that the only people who win are the casino owners, I, and I'm, I'm not prepared to contribute too much to them. I, I, no, I don't like, I'm, and my, my the, the one thing I come away from Las Vegas with, with which is a stain on my honor, and I hope I'm not in any way being political here, is that we stayed at the Trump Tower, and I, 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 I.
0: You're I'm, funding his campaign and, then, and there,
1: I? and there the lesson endeth, I, I, will, say, <laughs> I will say no more.
0: I think we're probably going to have uh, time for just two or three questions from the audience. Before we do that, I am going to subject you to the quick fire question round, because apparently this is traditional on a life and television evening. So you've just got to very quickly, don't think about it, just answer. Okay. Ever.
1: I Awa- haven't thought of very much so far. Here so, we go. Um, no, no change there.
0: Award winning broadcaster or world class cricketer?
1: Which should I prefer? World class cricketer.
0: Who makes you laugh? Um,
1: Comedians?
0: Lenny Henry. The Lenny Henry. Pint of bitter or glass of fine red?
1: Uh, red every time.
0: What makes you cry?
1: Um, pictures of refugees streaming across Macedonia to the site of barbed wire. I, I think that's. It, it strikes me as being something which one would have seen in 1936. I am horrified by those images.
0: Country File or the Kardashians?
1: I'm not too sure I know what the Kardashians are. (laughs) 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 That's country file then. The the
0: single most influential person in your life?
1: The single most influential person in life? I think my parents were probably
0: both. Positive discrimination or the market decides?
1: This is um, not too susceptible to these easy answers. Um, I think there are circumstances in which positive discrimination has to be done in South Africa where 80% of the population, 85% of the population were discriminated against. To change that, you had to to do it. I think there are real philosophical problems about positive discrimination. Um, uh, I I think it'd be horrible to be the person who gets the job because of positive discrimination and to have everybody in the room look around and say, I know exactly why he or she has got that job. That's awful. I'm, I'm a great believer in meritocracy.
0: Who would play you in a biopic of your life?
1: Oh, God, uh, nobody would want to do a biopic of my life. So I, I've never... I, I, can't, I can't answer that.
0: Should we pay for news?
1: That's a big, big question. I, I, think, the, the, I think the BBC are... But we pay for it anyway, in, in every way. Um, I think it should be made available to everyone, whether people pay or not. I think it's the main ingredient of democratic, pluralistic life.
0: Hugh Edwards or Tom Bradby? Pass. <laughs> you bloody old smoothie. Um, no, we're no, going to no. open it up to the audience. As I say, we are very, very tight for time. We'll take two, maximum three questions. If you... As a reporter, have there been times when being black has been a significant advantage and times when it's been a significant disadvantage?
1: I... I, I I would hate to say it's, it's never been an advantage, but I don't remember many of those. <laughs> um, I know in, in the, the people in the Arab countries where I went to, in the Middle East and so on, they were always fascinated about how I got there. Before I interviewed Saddam Hussein, I was subjected to a, a round of meeting with, with his, some of his ministers. And I went to one of these ministers' offices, and it was very clear that he had no idea why he was seeing me, and I had no idea why I was there. And so in the end, he said to me, um, how did you end up working in London for ITV? You know, and how did you end up here? How did you get this? You know? um, so they were all fascinated. And Gaddafi said the same thing. I mean, he said, how did you end up in London? You know, why didn't you come and work for me, and so on? Um, so they were always interested in, in, in me. Um, was it a disadvantage? I don't remember times when it was particularly and, and you know the, the wonderful thing about this this job is that there is this distance between you and the subject because of the camera you know and you you, you can almost almost disconnect yourself from some of the things you do but because because of the camera you know that's the important part of it the camera and what the camera does. Um, so I, I can't remember. I, I have no complaints about about anything. If, if anything, I think I've been overly lucky. I think. What would you say for the younger generation, for those who would hope to have even a quarter of the career that you've had, what would you say to them?
0: What's your advice?
1: Oh, God, I've always asked advice. I, I, I mean, I don't know. What do you say to young people today? They're much cleverer than I would ever be and keep making up their own minds. I... I still feel this business about some aspects of journalism being a, a vocation. It's, it's more than a job. I, I think you really have to want to do it, and you have to want to do it well, and you have to work hard at it, and you have to constantly work hard at it, and you never um, succeed in getting it totally right always be aware that if you are lucky enough to work in something like television, that it's not about you, it's about the the people, Um, and it's about the fact that for your one image to get on the screen, there are 60 people behind who make it possible. And so, from my point of view, if you allow me this um, remark, which is probably um, not very necessary here, but just don't ever believe in this nonsense of celebrity. It, It... it's one of the most annoying things I find about, I shouldn't say this really, about modern life, which makes me sound like a sort of antediluvian person. But, mm. you know, it's television, journalism. I mean, Kirsty on Desda and Disc will tell you it's, it's a collaborative enterprise. It's not about any one person. That's my advice. Great advice.
0: Is there anyone in history, in current, past, that you would like to interview? You can include Jesus, and what would you ask him or her?
1: We, we, as a, as a, as a kind of, a kind of, cater of people, we are frightfully boring about, you know, contemporaneous events. Do you know? Um, so today. I mean, one would want to talk to somebody who is in the news today. I, I, I'm frequently asked this, and I've never come up with a good answer about who I would have liked to, to, to have interviewed. I, I do, I do wish, for all sorts of reasons, that um, arch criminals like Adolf Hitler were subjected to rigorous Robin Day-style interviewing. I, I, I would, you know, because I think that. In secrecy, you know, and and behind the scenes and hidden away from the cameras and from journalistic inquiry, um, tyrants flourish. I didn't think it was any accident that people were so terrified of even mentioning the name Saddam Hussein. They they were terrified about the name. And and that terror was visited in a larger scale on his country. uh, um, I haven't answered your question, but I, I, I would l- like to think that people who rise up in any age are subjected to rigorous inquiries about what they really intend for us. I think the television interviews you see with politicians and so on, sometimes we get wary some of them and they don't tell us all we want to know, but they're desperately, desperately important. I'm... It, this this vocation, which I've been very fortunate to be a part of, I think is desperately important to our way of life.
0: That seems a very good point, not least because it is running very late to say thank you very much to the audience for the questions. Thank you to Rathbones for being our sponsors. Thank you so much to BAFTA for hosting this night a life in television, but more than anything, thank you for this evening, but thank you for the decades.
1: And thank you, Kirsty, for your kindness.
0: To